Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. Surprise, surprise, we have another amazing batch of scary stories coming to you right now. Are you ready? Let's begin as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I died and woke up in hell. This is how I escaped. Written by CIA Herp. I was never a very good person in life. I cheated on my wife, cheated on my taxes, stole from my business partners, beat my kids anytime they looked at me the wrong way, and overall, just acted like a general scumbag. In hindsight, I see it clearly. I wish I could start over and do it all again. One night, on my way home from my law firm, a freak ice storm covered the highway. I had four-wheel drive and didn't think about the falling sleet and hail until the truck in front of me began to slide and then jackknifed and flipped, landing not even ten feet in front of my SUV. I had no time to react. I slammed the brakes at the very last millisecond but ended up going into the side of the trailer at 70 miles an hour without a seatbelt on. The last thing I remember was time slowing down to a crawl as I flew through the windshield. Shards of safety glass glittering like stars all around me in the winter air. And then it was blackness. I awoke, screaming and hyperventilating in the same blackness, but without any pain. In the darkness, I felt my body running my hands over my arms, legs, chest, and face. I didn't seem to have a single broken bone or laceration. I was even in the same expensive Armani suit that I had been wearing during the accident. It seemed miraculous that I had somehow survived unscathed, without even a tear in my suit. I stood in the darkness, putting my hands out in front of me and stumbling around in a short, hesitant step. After a few minutes of this, I ran into a wall. The wall felt warm and seemed to vibrate under my fingers. I pushed on it and my hands went into it, like pushing into silly putty. I began to rip away pieces of the wall and throw them behind me, and a shaft of light pierced through the hole that I had just made. The light illuminated the cavern that I was in, showing a floor of cobblestone soaked in layer after layer of dark red clotted blood. The wall itself looked like the guts of some massive creature. It had long shards of white bone running through the top and bottom, with smaller pieces of bone connecting them. The rest was some light red and vibrating tissue, like intestines that had been unspooled to form a never-ending, solid wall. I looked down on my hands and saw with horror that dozens of black, maggot-like worms squirmed all down my wrists and hands. With a yelp and a jump backwards, 
I frantically tried to shake them off, but I could feel hot stings coming from my hands as they bit me over and over. After a few minutes of writhing and rubbing my hands together, I got them all off. I could feel my heart beating out of my chest and instinctually kept checking the rest of my body to make sure that I didn't miss any more of the biting, blood-sucking maggots. The soft, fiery light that came through the hole I made in the living wall showed me a door on the opposite side of the hall from the wall. From what I could see, it had a straight hallway that went off into the darkness. Having no other good options, I started walking down the hall, the minuscule light quickly fading into nothing. I put my hands out in front of me and felt the smooth stone walls. I walked in a straight line for what felt like hours before I seen a glimmer of red light. At first, only a tiny pinpoint. As I walked towards it, it grew and grew, until I realized that I was staring at a door that must have been 20 feet tall, surrounded by polished white bones on all sides. The bones that composed the framework of the door were so massive, they looked like they had come from a blue whale, as if somebody had taken the ribs off of one and fused them together in an archway. All I could think of as I approached this door was my wife, my child, and my job. Everything that I had identified as me, everything that gave me meaning. Despite having cheated on my wife many times, I still loved her deep down. After all, I had protected her from the knowledge of what a poor husband I was, simply out of love for her. I had never let my five-year-old child suspect that his father was involved in anything illegal or immoral. My love for them had made me protect them from all the things that I had to do to guarantee us a better life, and now I just wanted to see them again, to be with them. I knew that I was basically a good person and I just wanted another chance to prove it. I kept their faces in my mind's eye as I walked through the massive archway. It looked big enough to drive a tractor trailer through. I saw a flickering light coming from the other side and taking a deep breath in, I stepped over the threshold. What I saw horrified me and shocked me into stillness. I had walked into an open field. The dark red and black clouds above blocking out any sky. The light filtering through them cast everything into a bloody glow. The field itself looked at first like a farmer's field, with finely spaced rows of soil plowed into perfect lines. And growing out of the earth stood many squat brown plants covered in thorns. Out of the tip of each one, a large egg sac clung, weighing the plant down and bending many of them to the ground. The egg sacs were pale and unbroken filled with fluid and dark silhouettes in each one. I saw beings writhing, one adult-sized silhouette in each sack, some putting their faces up to the wall of the sack in a silent scream, others trying to reach their arms and legs out through. But the sturdy covering of the yolk just bowed out with their arms and legs and it didn't pop. It looked as if the people inside the eggs were all drowning. I quickly began speed walking between the lines of horrifying plants, wondering whether the plants fed on the people in the sacks or whether it just fed them and gave birth to them. As I passed the first row, 
One of these sacks burst and a rotting fluid flowed out, dumping a beautiful naked woman at my feet. She had long blonde hair and green eyes, flawless skin and a tiny upturned nose. She heaved in a deep breath as if she had been drowning before looking up at me. Oh God, she said, please don't hurt me. I shook my head and I helped her to her feet. Why would I hurt you, ma'am? I asked. Everyone here hurts me, she said, starting to weep. Her fingers shook as she sobbed, bowing her head in a pathetic way. I grabbed her arm. I promise you that I won't hurt you. I'm one of the good guys, but I think we should get going, I said. We really need to find a way out of here. Out of here, she asked, crying and laughing at the same time. There's no way out of here. Don't you know where you are? I shook my head. This is the underworld. I don't know if it's in the judo-christian sense, but it is close enough. Everyone here is dead. I don't feel dead, I said, rubbing my hands over my suit, my face, and my hair. Everything seems intact. She nodded at this, her crying quieting down as she focused on my face. Everybody comes in like that, until they catch you, burn you, rip you apart. And then when your body is too spent to feel anymore, they bury you in these fields. These plants grow overnight, encasing your body in a sack and bringing it up to the surface, where it starts to feed you and revive you. After you're healed enough for another round all over again, the fruit of the plant bursts. But who brings you to these fields? Who's in charge? I asked. Her pupils dilated, her eyes wide. She whispered the answer. Angels. At that moment, a bolt of lightning shot down from the red sky, bursting open dozens of plants nearby and showering us in a mixture of blood, amniotic fluid, thorns, and leaves. I grabbed her arm. Let's get out of here, I said. We can talk more when we get somewhere safe. She laughed at this as if it was the most absurd thing that she had ever heard, and we began to run. By the way, I said, gasping between breaths, my name is Jay. Angela, she said. At the end of the field, I saw a paved road. It had countless potholes and cracks running through it and some parts of it had been wiped out and fallen into a stream that ran parallel to the further side. But I was still glad to see some sign of a trail. A road, I cried, pointed in excitement. Maybe that road leads somewhere out of this place. She shook her head in amazement at my stupidity, but I ignored her. I had to hope that there was some way out, that this wasn't just a never-ending landscape of horror under a blood-red sky. The road seemed to stretch out in both directions forever, fading into each horizon in a perfectly straight line. I could see that parts of the road were entirely missing, and it looked like some bridges had collapsed further down in the direction that I was looking. So I turned the opposite way and started moving, holding Angela's hand as I went. Her presence gave me some comfort. She even reminded me of my wife to a certain degree as they both had a very light skin and an overall Irish cast to their faces, 
If this is death, I said, then why are you here? She looked up at me, surprised by the question. Heaving a deep sigh, she looked away. No sense in keeping secrets here, I guess, she said. We're just going to get captured and sent to death again anyways. That's all that it is here. Just a never-ending cycle of pain and death. A lot of these people completely lose their minds. She rubbed her hand over her eyes as if her head hurt her. I always wanted to be an actress, but I grew up having no money. I met an older man who said he believed in me and that he wanted to take me to L.A., but we needed money to get from the East Coast to L.A. to live there while I looked for work. He convinced me to rob a bank with him to get it. Needless to say, they didn't work out very well. He got spooked and murdered two of the tellers before a security guard came out and shot him in the head. I grabbed his gun and I killed the guard, took the money and ran. When the cops had caught up to me, I pulled over slowly, put the gun to my temple and I pulled the trigger. I had absolutely no intention of going to prison for the rest of my life. I was a stupid kid, really. I couldn't believe this angelic, innocent-looking young woman had participated in murder. It shocked me to my core. If this is hell, I said, I don't really feel like I belong. Yes, I did some bad things, but I never killed anyone, never put a gun to anyone's head, never even killed an animal. She looked up at me sharply. You're only lying to yourself, she said. No one innocent comes here but I don't really care what you did to be honest. We're both trapped here and that's all that I need to know. There's no hope. Just don't betray me. Our only chance of surviving longer is to stick together and trust each other. As we ran, the fields began to fade and what looked like an old dilapidated western town began to take their place. I saw people hanging by their necks from these street signs. Overall, it seemed like the safest place in the area. However, so I began to pull Angela over in that direction. There was an old saloon with swinging gates and we walked inside, wary of any traps. In the corner, I saw what looked like a medieval knight with massive white wings flowing out from his back. He held a man's mouth open while another man in a full suit of glowing blue armor poured molten lead down his throat. The man screamed for a moment, and then the lead ate through his neck and he collapsed to the ground. Angels, Angela said to me. Their heads turned towards us, but there were no faces there. It was just an empty black void under a platinum helmet, one that seemed to glow from its own inner light. They approached me, and I grabbed Angela. Please, please, take the girl and let me live, I screamed my heart bursting with anxiety in my chest. They looked at each other and then back at me. Tell me how to get out of here and she's all yours. I'll hold her down while you burn her alive or cut her to pieces. Please, I just want to see my family. To my utter astonishment, they nodded at me. One spoke in a deep, slow cadence. His voice sounded like thousands of voices at different pitches, all mixing and echoing over each other. You can ride the lightning up to Earth, one said. The lightning connects us to those calling on magic. Those who call on demons or try to contact ghosts. Any who are weak and small can be overwhelmed 
by those who ride the lightning up to them and possess them. But you will always return to us in the end. I nodded, throwing Angela in the direction and turning to run back to the field. Lightning was crashing down all around me now, bursting egg sacs and plants every few seconds, but I was no longer afraid of it. I looked up at the sky and saw a swirling whirlpool of red and black, and stood under it as a bolt struck me directly in the center of my head. I felt myself being sucked up at an incredible speed and saw above the clouds a deep void. I fell into the void and saw through another set of eyes. Two teens played with a Ouija board in a graveyard, giggling as if it were a game, surrounded by black candles. Demons, we call on you to answer us. One of them with a high voice shrieked. As his mouth opened, I rushed into it. His eyes widened in shock as I pushed his soul out, sending it spiraling back into the void that I had just emerged from. I now had complete control over his body. Hey man, the other kid asked me, are you okay? I nodded smiling, looking around at the clear sky and feeling relieved to be back. Never been better, buddy. Life is scary when you quit your job and literally nobody noticed. Life is scary when you wink at your crush as you pass by your desk, only to realize that you have toilet paper stuck to your heel. Life is even scary when it's your first date and you really need to fart. Now we all deal with Sunday scaries, right? That oh crap, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dread feelings that hit you on Sunday evenings when you think about work or school the next day, or life in general. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. Sunday scary CBD gummies were made to defeat the crap life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind. Super moms, students, party animals, regretful drunk texters, and everything in between. Now me personally, I don't relax very well. I've never been someone who can just sit down and chill out. I always feel like I need to be doing something. Whether that is work-wise or at home. It's just hard to shut off my brain and chill. While that can be positive in some ways, it also makes me overthink and stress myself out. Sunday Scaries are vitamin-boosted CBD gummies that actually work and they chill me out fast. Look, we all have the right to live scare-free. So whether you need to take the edge off, calm your racing mind, or sleep better, or just chill. Take two CBD gummies. Every day to keep the scaries away. Let me save you with my 25% discount. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code MrCreeps for your discount. That's sundayscaries.com promo code MrCreeps for 25% off. I'm a detective and my last case was the most disturbing of my career. Written by Obsolete Goat. Soft beeping from my work alarm woke me in the morning. The same sound as always, a pulsing of noise that was like a heartbeat. Over the years, I had grown used to the noise signifying another day at the station. I was positive about my lack of work, but I could just feel some new and horrific case would be looming over me soon. Turning my clock off to prevent it from waking my slumbering wife, 
I pulled myself out of bed and got dressed. I had breakfast and I read the news. Old cases printed on the cover. Almost in sync with my need to get up and head over to the station, a knock came at my door. And back to the grind, I ummed as I kicked my shoes on. Upon opening the door, I found my work partner, a spry woman in her late 30s with curly red hair pulled back into a ponytail. She wore a light brown coat and a sweet smile. Morning, Harrison. She chirped before pushing a coffee into my hands. The boys want you over at Saints Lane apartment block. Seems that they found a body. I took the coffee from her, same one that she always gave me every day, and I sipped it. It's about time we got some more work. Smiley and I closed the front door and headed to her car. Sharon Whittingham, to give her full name, was a detective like me. I trained her and was expecting her to move to a new city once she was trained, since she had the skills to go far. But she, like most people who live here, stayed. Within a half an hour we had arrived. The complex that we found ourselves at was the kind people tell of in ghost stories. Old, damp, and half empty. It was once a low-cost housing project from about 50 years ago. But the only thing it kept after countless contractors had pulled out was the low cost. A few squad cars were already outside, the lights flicking on and off rhythmically. From what Sharon had told me, we knew the body was that of a young male about 23 years old. We were trying to hunt for his family but as yet didn't have many leads. I ran through the notes in my head as we ascended the four flights of stairs up to room 307. Yellow and black tape was hung about the place, stopping the other dozen residents on the complex from getting in. The door had been broken in by our own forces in an attempt to see what the source of these foul smell in the complex was. Little had been disturbed in the apartment itself. A few things like pillows were on the floor but nothing to suggest a struggle. Sharon headed into the bedroom of the apartment and nodded her head towards the body. Grimly, I followed her in. There, lying naked on the bed was a young man with black hair, green eyes, and a few studs. His body was a mess. Most of his chest had been pulled open and the lungs and heart partially removed, clawed out by long nails. Though his death looked terrific, the young man had a peaceful look on his face. What a sorry sight, I commented walking over to the body to take a closer look at the wound in his chest. That's what I said. Sharon nodded, looking around the bedroom. This case looks like an odd one. I mean, just look at this room. It's immaculate, not a thing out of place. It doesn't look like there is a struggle to me. I nodded in agreement before looking at the man's side table to inspect it for clues. I pulled some gloves on and started to leave through his possessions. Has anybody reported hearing a disturbance here in the past few weeks? No, the kid hardly made any noise it seemed. He had moved in a few years ago. Didn't go out much or have many people over. Do we have a name? Uh, yeah, I think so. He called himself Joshua Brown. He was working close by, at a restaurant as a waiter. I see. 
I moved back from the small bedside cabinet, making notes of a framed photo by the lab. The image was of a boy, Joshua, in his late teens with another boy with long white hair, snowy skin and a pink jumper. They looked happy together. Just as I was about to stand, I noticed a few empty packets of contraceptives on the floor. I picked them up carefully, and I placed them into a clear plastic bag before showing them to Sharon. Do you think he knew his killer? Sharon eyed me for a moment. She always said that I had an odd way with words. Well, he could have done it with his killer before he met his maker, so to speak. She pondered for a moment before spotting the photograph. If we look at it from that angle, it's totally plausible. We should try to see who he knew, who his friends and lovers were. Unless it was a one-night stand, of course. I nodded and wandered around the room some more. Get someone to look into his phone records, a computer, and whatever other communication devices that he has. That'll be a good first lead. We should also be able to get some DNA from this place if we need to identify. You talk like such an old man sometimes, Sharon smiled. If we get this to court, we should be able to prove who did it. We just need to find the one who did the deed. I stifled a chuckle. You talk like a teenager sometimes, Sharon. I knew full well that my comeback had no effect. Let's hope we can get whoever did this. As if we ever let them get away. I smiled at her optimism and I continued my search. As expected, a good number of DNA samples were recovered and sent off to the lab. While Sharon and I spoke to his neighbors to see if anybody knew Joshua. They all said the same thing. As far as they knew, he was a very quiet lad. Though his appearance may have suggested otherwise. He was kind, didn't talk about himself or his family too much. We were still finding it hard to get in contact with his parents, or the boy in the photo, whoever that was. The few photos around Joshua's flat were almost all of the albino teenager, and we guessed that they had probably been partners at some point. Working on that assumption, we had started to construct a story that the two had probably split up or moved apart. But it met up again recently, and the albino had, after intercourse, killed Joshua. It was a little flimsy, but we had to start somewhere. It was long after 11 that night that I finally took a taxi home. In the heat of the moment, I had lost myself in work, and I had lost all track of time. Only when I saw that it was so late did I at last leave. I arrived home and was met by my darling wife. Even now, 43 years after first meeting her at college, she hasn't lost her looks in my eyes. Even after she had her first stroke, I still loved her looks. They do say that love is blind after all. Good evening, love, I said with a soft voice. You could say that me and my wife Annabelle were the ideal model of what an old married couple should be, still as close as ever. Though I now had a full head of silver hair, I hadn't retired. After my wife's first stroke, she had wanted our lives to stay the same. She stayed at home and rested while I went to work. I loved my work and the money that it brought in helped to pay for the medical bills. Evening, my wife replied after a short pause. How was work today? I embraced her and smiled. 
not giving her an answer other than a happy moan. Annabelle hugged me back smiling. I hated telling her about my work. The death that I saw, so I hid it from her. For the rest of the evening, we simply ate dinner and watched TV, before falling asleep at about 1am. The next day started the same. My alarm started softly to raise me from my slumber and then I left to greet Sharon. She filled me in on some of the developments that had happened since we last spoke. The body had been moved from the apartment and we were now free to do a deep search. Joshua's laptop had been found and was in the lab, being pulled apart for information. I needed confirmation that nothing had been missed, so I rode with Sharon to the apartment. The place was quiet as we went in, the smell of damp stronger than ever now. On entering the apartment, we found that little was out of place, thanks to the hands of our experienced team. I started to look about, first going through the kitchen and then the living room, followed by the bathroom and then the bedroom, looking in more detail than I had before. I made a note that the kitchen was poorly stocked to feed two people, and that the only clothes there belonged to Joshua. Sharon and I quickly came to the same conclusion, that he was living alone at the time of his death. My gaze turned back to the bed. Most of the covers had been taken away, but there was still some dried blood on the mattress, outlined by tape to show where the body once lay. I looked at Sharon, who was rummaging through the dresser to the right of the small window that gave light to the room. On top of the dresser, there were a number of small trinkets, including a photograph of the albino boy, a freestanding cross with a rosary hung about it, and a copy of the Bible. You see anything, Sharon? I asked, slowly walking over to look over her shoulder. Well, he was into his religion, but it looks normal enough. She pondered, tapping the side of her neck in thought. I nodded in agreement, coupling this with a small noise to signify that I thought she was indeed correct. I would like to know who the albino boy is. He looks to be a bit of a theme here. A possible suspect. Can't be sure until we find him, but it's within reason. I picked up the photograph and I removed it from its frame. For a moment, I studied the image before noticing something as I held it to the light. Dark patches. Careful to not damage the deceased possessions, I turned the image over to see writing on the back. It read like a love letter, short, sweet, and simple. It was sunny that day like the sun. You light up my day, my angel. I quoted aloud. Sharon looked back at me in puzzlement for a moment before realizing that I was reading something. Is there something on the back of the photograph? With a nod, I handed over the image. No name, sadly. Like me, Sharon studied the writing. At least we know now that the two of them were dating. A bit tacky if you ask me. I chuckled. When you find love, you'll learn that there is no such thing as tacky. Oh, you know full well that I have no intention of finding love. Sharon responded flatly. She had explained to me before that she wasn't interested in any kind of relationship that wasn't a work of friend base. She had enjoyed her solitude. Yeah, we'll see. I smiled back before going to inspect the other images. 
Let's try and find the name of the albino boy. That's our first task. Sharon agreed before hunting about for more photos to see if any others had messages on the back. Sadly, we were out of luck. After collecting a few more of the young man's possessions, we headed back to the station to try to fit the links together and to wait in the labs to give us more information. It was past four when I got a call from the station's pathologist. A towering, blonde-haired man we all lovingly called R. He was from Russia and had one of those very tricky names with a great number of K's and V's in it. He told us that he had news about the body and asked us to come over as soon as we could make it. I told Sharon and we headed over to his lab, all the way on the other side of town. R was a workaholic like me, and he often pulled all-nighters against his better judgment. We headed into the small clinic and were buzzed into the main lab by R's young receptionist. R greeted us at the entrance to his lab. His long blonde hair was pulled back into a ponytail that often sat on his shoulder. His eyes were a soft blue and he wore a long white lab coat. On his right wrist, he had a small gold bangle which I had never seen him remove. His skin was very white and he often wore a somewhat blank expression. The kind that you see in the face of someone who's lived with death for many years. I saw myself in R sometimes. Harrison, Sharon, glad you can make it over here so quickly. R smiled, holding out a hand. I took his hand and shook it. Well, you know what we're like, eager to get things done. It's good to see you again. R had worked for us for about a year now. Before that, he was a GP. A very good and caring one too. But after a tragedy had struck his family, he had started to work here. Sharon also shook R's hand before heading towards his lab. R smiled in my direction to thank me for the pleasantries. I knew that he wasn't a talker. I followed and looked over to a metal table that presented the body of the victim, covered with a thin white sheet. What I found was pretty interesting really. A bit of a sick case though, the doctor commented, before pulling the cover down to reveal the upper half of the body, folding the cover just under the wound in his chest. What do you mean? Sharon asked, walking over to look while I had admired from afar. As I see it, his rib cage was pulled open and then most of the ribs were removed, followed by the consumption of the lungs and heart. There was a dumbfounded silence. You mean somebody's eaten him? Sharon shouted a little too loudly for R's liking, as he was very sensitive to sound. Yes, eaten, R responded, a little agitated to have had Sharon shout at him. There were both large claw and bite marks on the remaining tissue. He signaled to a mouth a sized bite mark, consisting of many needle-like holes that was uncovered at the bottom of the ribcage. I felt a little bit ill just thinking about the notion of one human eating another. Those aren't human though, I mean look at them, Sharon exclaimed as shocked as I was. Well, these bites come in sets of two and they're the right proportion to be human. Say the one doing the eating had possession of some kind of adapted weapon. Humans are strange creatures, you know. Our eyes, peering over his glasses, remained on the body. 
I paused. He did have a point after all. Maybe this was a far more twisted story than I had first imagined. For the rest of the meeting, R filled us in on what else he had worked on about the body and he gave us his full report. After reading through the case notes, Sharon and I both headed home. Annabelle met me at the door and we chatted about our day, though I made sure to cut out as much of the dark information as I could. I picked at my dinner and avoided mention of food for most of the evening. Honestly, I was shaken by what R had told me, so much so that I could hardly respond to my wife. Around 10, I went to bed although I couldn't sleep. With the case on my mind, it was hard to think of anything else. Ideas rattled around my head. I arrived at the station by 7, a little early for me but I felt like walking. There's something about walking to a ride before anyone else that's strangely enjoyable. By lunchtime, Joshua's journal was released from the labs with every page copied and recorded. Sharon went out again to ask around about the young man while I stayed put to read the journal. It was a few years old, but I thought it would still be in the right time span to possibly include information about the albino. I was right to assume that it would. The journal was nothing special. It went from the teen's 15th birthday and stopped at his 16th. It started with the boy describing what he got for his birthday. A phone. The book that he was writing in and a few trinkets from one of his friends. He spoke highly of his friend who I gather was known as Lyot. If Lyot was the name of the albano boy, then it should be easy enough to find him after all. There can't be too many kids named Lyot in the U.S. For the next few hours or so, I focused on nothing but the journal, making sure to take notes on pretty much everything about the teen's life that he wrote about. To my disappointment, there wasn't much of interest apart from a few briefly mentioned cases of bullying, some intimacy between the young Joshua and Lyot, and a few small social events that he and Lyot had attended. Joshua seemed to be very close to Lyot. He seemed to love him deeply, although it was mentioned that the boys never told their parents. The journal told of how Lyot was badly bullied at school and suffered depression as well as some other health problems. He took a lot of medications, an amount that I would consider to be unsafe. As the journal went on, things remained the same. The two lads to date in secret and they kept their heads down at school to avoid attention. Slowly, I closed the journal with care before noticing that Sharon had come in. Hey Harrison, how are the tricks? She inquired, coming over with some lunch. Gladly, I took it from her. Well, it looks like we have a name to match her face now. It seems from the journal that Joshua was dating a boy named Lyot, around the age of 16 and it looks like a long-term relationship to me. Sharon picked up the book and started to skim it along with my notes. I reckon we've got our suspect's name. Seems so. Well then, let's put it into the computer. Triumphantly, Sharon collected the notes from the desk before heading over to the computer. Though my old legs had fallen asleep from the long time sitting, I raised myself and headed after her. By the time that I arrived, Sharon had sat herself down at a computer and was punching in her login. 
Before long, our files were open and the hunt was on. As expected, it didn't take long at all, although what I saw filled me with disappointment. Elliot Penhart, a white-haired male from a small town in Texas, was found guilty today of murder-suicide. The youngster, age 17, shot dead his father, the town's resident priest, on Monday the 17th of February. The verdict of the court can now bring answers to those affected by the event. Sharon sighed deeply, reading aloud the article that was before her. It looks like we went down the rabbit hole on this one, Chief. I nodded, although I remained transfixed by the article. It was simple with little detail, but there was a mention of three older brothers, a mother in her 40s and the cause of death for both Lyot and his father. His father was shot in the chest and later died at a hospital while Lyot had shot himself. A poor thing. Yep, back to square one it seems, Sharon commented. We'll find other leads, you know, we can do this. I smiled, knowing this had probably knocked the wind out of Sharon's sails. She had this habit of sticking to one idea in a case and only gives up on it if she is proven wrong. I know. For a moment, she just pretended to read the article before I stopping herself, leaning close to the screen. You reckon Joshua would have known Lyot's brothers? What do you mean? Well, Joshua's boss told me that he was a bit of an introvert. He never really went out and hardly ever talked to anyone. Since the other residents in Joshua's complex never saw him with anyone, is it safe to assume that he knew the killer? Since he wouldn't really invite a random stranger in. Say, one of Lyot's brothers came to town. Joshua offers them a place to stay and the rest is history. Sharon knew that herself that this could be a bit far-fetched, but I knew that she would look into it. Uh, find the family then. See if we can get some more information, I suggested. Got it. On that, Sharon started to dig into our computers for more information about the family, while I simply went to work organizing the files for the case, hoping to see a fresh trail. I arrived home at 7 again that night. I greeted my lovely wife and sat with her at the dining table. Though her mind was sometimes muddled and she wasn't always entirely there, I could see that she was pretty excited today. Interested as to why this was, I slipped into conversation over our beef stew. How was your day then, Annabelle? I smiled, happy in the knowledge that she seemed better today than she had been in a long time. The doctors had warned of another stroke if she became stressed or was too active, so she often confined herself to the house, doing very little at all. It was as if she had been prescribed loneliness. But some days, she was happy. Happy to live like this. Oh, my day was lovely, she smiled, looking up from her meal. A very nice boy came over today. He was collecting for charity. Did you give them anything? I asked back, knowing that my wife was a very generous person. Well, she said after a little pause. He was looking to collect clothes, so... I gave him some of the shirts that are too small for you now, as well as some change. I tried to invite him in for cake and sandwiches. Her mind trailed off for a moment before she smiled. I had invited him in for tea, but when he came in, he didn't need anything, though he did say that he was hungry. 
odd boy. Often my wife would repeat her sentences, forgetting what she had just said. That's nice. I've been meaning to get rid of those shirts for a while now. I smiled. There was something about talking like this that always helped me get my mind off work. I allowed the conversation to continue until we had finished dinner and then we watched TV and went to bed, just like most nights. It was a simple lifestyle, but I wouldn't ask for any other. For the next few days, nothing happened of much note. All three Penhart brothers had alibis for the night of the murder and so did the now single mother. Joshua's parents told us that their son hardly ever spoke to them, but they would come and collect his body soon. We found a few more leads, though they all ran cold sooner or later. The IT department was still working on the computer and the phone of the deceased. It was late. A few lights were on in the city, but I still burned the midnight oil, working through statement after statement of the young man. Every one of them said the same thing. Joshua never talked to anyone, never had anyone over, and pretty much never left his apartment, apart from when he went to work or went shopping. I was at a loss. Knock, knock. Hummed a familiar voice, baritone and tinted with accent. I looked up and saw R in the doorway, holding a few files. Like me, he was burning the midnight oil, though it was a little odd to see him in my office. I welcomed him in. Evening, doctor. R came in, sitting across from me at my desk before taking my notes to read over them. Shouldn't you be at home with your wife now? Though I would love to, I'm at a loss here, R. I'm not the man that I was 30 years ago. He smiled. I watched him read over my notes before taking a look at the file that he had brought with him. Didn't expect to see you here so late. I wanted to hand over these notes. I found some bits and bobs. He paused. Where are you with the case? I knew full well that R would not be willing to tell me anything about his finds unless I told him mine. He liked to trade information. It was one of his many odd tricks. Well, we've closed the case on trying to find the albino kid. Turns out that our top suspect had been dead for years. We can't find any new leads. This uh, job looks like it was done professionally, R, and I'm starting to wonder if we can solve it. I knew full well that I was putting it on thick, being a pessimist, but I wanted to go over the top. The albino kid... Sharon had mentioned him over some drinks and she was so hyped up about finding the supposed killer so quickly. I didn't want to tell her. Tell her what? I asked in response. Don't you know? I thought you looked into the Penthart incident. No, I thought it was an open and shut case. Was it not? R smiled annoyingly. He always reveled in knowing things that others didn't. No, not totally. The trial was a shambles, evidence was lost, statements pulled out and reports rejected. Originally, it was going to be presented as a case of retaliation, an act of self-defense, with the remaining parents standing trial for abuse, but it was not to be. Closing the files that he was reading, I watched a rather smug smile creep across the tall doctor's face. Lyatt's body went missing. I paused, half annoyed that I hadn't been told but then also confused. When missing, it sounded foolish but R didn't usually lie. Yep, 
I knew the pathologist who was going to make an assessment of Lyatt's body before laying him to rest, but the night before she was going to make the report, the body just vanished, gone without a trace. That's total fiction, I exclaimed. A body can't simply get up and walk away. R nodded and then opened the file that he was going to deliver to me. It's up to you whether you believe me or not. Me and some work friends called it the body snatcher. When opening the file, I saw some of the latest DNA traces found of Joshua's body, along with long strands of pure white hair. I couldn't think of what to say. I just sat silently looking at the report. The hair was about the right length and color it belonged to the albinos, but how could that possibly be? You're welcome, R hummed, standing up before leaving my office. Left alone with my thoughts, I felt my stomach turn over. I had seen the reports from the other crime scene, the boy lying in a pool of his own blood and brain tissue, clasping a small revolver in one hand. It could have been the lack of sleep, things no longer added up in that case and nothing made any sense to me. Theories buzzed and nagged at me. What if the death was fate? What if the body was stolen? What if? I stood up quickly, holding my head before groaning. The dead don't walk around, Harrison. Get a grip. My lack of sleep was clearly apparent now. Pushing the files into my desk drawer, I headed home. Annoyed at R, but also deeply puzzled. My alarm did little to wake me the next morning, although the pounding at my door did. Sharon, who was far too peppy for this time of day, had just gotten news that the laptop files had now been copied and were free to read. I hurriedly got myself dressed and then left to join her. On the way in, she told me that they had found a full electronic journal, with the last entry being the day of Joshua's death. She was hopeful that this could be our route to finishing the case. Even if it was lacking detail, it could shine some light on the story leading up to the young man's death. Sharon pretty much sprinted to my office where a hard copy of the journal had been placed. Instantly, she fumbled for the last entry. I, slower at my age, arrived just as she had found the page. Sitting down in my own chair, I took out a notepad and waited for Sharon to read what it said. Okay, March 26th. She paused to find her words before a very puzzled look crossed her face. What's wrong? I asked. Nothing, let me just read it. I could tell that she was composing herself, taking a breath. She started to read. I know that God must be smiling upon me and my prayers have been answered and I have him back. Robbed from me, I had given up hope that we could be one again. But we will be. He doesn't know what he is now, but I don't care. He's an angel now. The moonlight shows his true form. It scared me at first, but I know this was meant to be. I'll become a part of him. I lie with him now as I type this. His skin is so cold and pure like snow. He's yet to wake up from last night. He bit him pretty badly from animal instinct, but he's starving. My angel is starving. Tonight, I'm not going to fight him. We can make a thing of it before his mind is taken by the moonlight. If anybody finds this, finds me. Just know that I wanted this. I wanted to save my angel from his hunger. There was only silence left between Sharon and me as she had finished reading. 
Slowly, she placed the papers down, looking a little bit ill. He let this person kill him? What in the world was going on about an angel? Pulling my gaze away, I stumbled upon the file that I recognized from last night. I bit my tongue and then struggled to form a sentence. I want to know everything. Who Joshua knew and who his friends were. Those who went missing and those he moved apart from. In reality, I felt numb. This couldn't be real, could it? Sharon was just as confused and disturbed as I was. Yes, Harrison, but what do you think he was talking about? He doesn't seem to be stable, I mean. The way that he talks here as well. It's odd to say the least. What the heck was going on? I remained silent for a while. I don't know. I'm going to go ask around town and see if I can learn anything. I paused. Alone. Sharon just nodded, knowing that I was as perplexed as she was about the whole business. And taking my coat, I left, planning on walking over to Ara's place to chat with him, to see if he could talk some sense into me. The walk across town was long and laborious as I held my head down for most of the way. Moving my way through the waves of people, I drew closer to the building where R worked. The sense of dread that had hung over me ever since last night, which had strengthened after reading the journal, felt so much greater now. The face and form of the young white-haired man was etched into my mind. I quickened my step onwards. Pushing the door of the clinic open, I started to head over to the front desk to call for R. But that was when I saw him. Alone and sitting on the furthest most chair from the door sat a young boy. His clothes were tattered, his hair long and white. He looked like a ghost. His skin was marble. I felt a sharp inhale of air enter my chest. Harrison, what are you doing here? R called, walking around the corner. I snapped from my trance and grabbed his arms, trying to get him to listen. There, look, there, I... As I turned to point to the boy, I saw that the chair was empty, as though I had simply imagined him. R gave me a puzzled look. A chair? His accent sounded a little stronger than normal as he muttered. Are you okay? No words came out of my mouth, but I nodded, letting go of R. Let's get you some coffee and give you a place to sit down, okay? Without waiting for a response, R led me into a small conference room and got me to sit, before walking off to get some coffee for the both of us. Taking deep breaths, I tried to control myself. And don't let the stresses get to you. I tried to breathe slowly. Perhaps this was just a stress-related episode. But the only thing that I could think about was Joshua and his killer, who in my mind was the white-haired teen. Before long, R came back a folder under his arms along with two steaming hot cups of coffee. I knew the man had an addiction to coffee and would offer or accept it at any opportunity. Passing me my mug, I felt myself start to relax even before I started to drink. R sat across from me, placed his work down, and then also started to drink. What happened out there? He asked after a short pause. I don't know, I think the stress is getting to me. I responded flatly, hardly concentrating. R sighed and then smiled. How old are you, Harrison? You're in your 60s now. Shouldn't you be living at home with your wife retired? 
I glared at him for a moment. Doctor's orders, you need to rest, Harrison. Look, I know you enjoy this and your wife likes to keep you busy, but this job, this style of life really isn't too good for you, considering. My face softened and I nodded a little. In this case in particular, why don't you leave it to Sharon and the other boys at the station? They're all up to solving it, I just don't think you should be working with a case like this. Not after, well, you know. I've accepted what happened, Dar, and I don't want to retire. This job keeps my mind working. And no one doesn't, Harrison, I can see it in your eyes. I'm saying this not as a doctor, but as your friend. You should stay with your wife and rest for a few weeks. Ari's voice had gotten softer. He knew that my wife's time was short now. Finally, I nodded and agreed. For hours, I just chatted with R about life. Looking back, I guess I did need to cut down my work hours and spend more time with my lovely wife. Night was falling as I started to walk home. People were buzzing around, migrating back to their homes from their long work days. I felt better about life, more relaxed. Passing by shop fronts and restaurants, I started to instinctively look at people, blocking out the bad images with the nicer ones. A couple were courting in the park under the old oak tree. One of the town's resident homeless was sitting at a bus stop with his large headphones on, tapping his foot in time with an unknown song. A proud giant of a man was walking home with his young son, carrying a bag of football kit. I found myself smiling, feeling the tensions of the case melt away. A girl selling roses, a man going to work at a restaurant, a white-haired teen in a light purple jumper looking over at me with dead blue eyes. I stopped abruptly and looked back. The teen had gone again, vanished into the crowds. My mouth felt dry. It was only stress, right? I quickened my steps, feeling my body pump with adrenaline. A cab sitting at red lights, a scruffy man walking down back streets. The white-haired boy again, his neck purple like it was bruised. I walked faster still. The sky was orange as the sun set. The building to my right had five floors. The dumpster around the corner house, three bin bags. The white-haired boy again. His face wet from tears and pure white hair stained crimson. My eyes darted forward, away from the crowds and fell on him again. One eye was golden and it seemed to be ruptured while the other was soft blue. His body looked so cold. I staggered back but he had vanished again in the blink of an eye. Panicked, I started to run to the warmth of my home, my whole body shaking now. Breathless, I flew down my small street and fumbled for my keys before pushing the door open. Inside, I tried to catch my breath, taking lungful after lungful of air. Exhaling heavily and I looked around. The money pot that stood on a small table by the doorway to the living room was smashed on the floor. And so too was one of the lamps, a picture frame, keys. I felt as if time had stopped as I became aware of the sound of erratic breathing and gasping. I ran around the corner into my living room where I saw my wife convulsing on the floor. Her eyes were unfocused, one half of her face thumped to the side, her mouth half open. She was having another stroke. Lunging forward, I went to take her into my arms, but that was when I saw it. 
So hungry, he murmured. One soft blue eye locked on my wife. He was thin, pale, and cold. Moonlight poked its head out from behind the clouds for a moment, showing his true nature. Vast wings of pure light in a halo. Bloody white claws on both his hands and feet. Bloody neck, head and mouth, adorned with hundreds of sharp teeth. As soon as the clouds covered the moon again, he reverted back to the corpse that he was. My eyes were locked on it. The angel of death that sat and watched as my wife had died. It was as if something had taken over the body of a young man and now wore his skin like a well-fitting glove. What are you? I screamed. Its eyes remained fixed on my wife, stiller now. Hungry. Starving. I turned to my wife, taking her in my arms. This seemed to confuse the angel, puppeteering the body that it called home. It moved towards me and my wife. The moon shone on it again and the smell of rot was stagnant in the room. Get back. It didn't listen. Simply moved closer, licking its long claws. I want it. For a split second it vanished out of sight, and my world went dark. I woke to a pounding pain in the back of my head. I forced myself upright before promptly clasping a hand over my mouth at what I saw. The starving angel was crouched over my wife's body or what was left of it, pulling away at the chest mindlessly, pushing flesh and muscle into its mouth. I thought that I would vomit but grabbing for my handgun I took aim. Its dead eyes looked at me through bloody white hair, not seeming to know or care what I was doing. Get off of her! I screamed before shooting all five rounds into its head. To my horror, the angel took every single one reactionless. Every bullet fell back out the hole that it had made, bringing a pungent smell of rot with it before closing up. Though it was futile, I continued to click the trigger of my gun, though nothing came out. I shouted and screamed, but it just continued to eat. The neighbors arrived a short time later reporting that they found me with the body of my wife crying and screaming at monsters. Sharon and the rest of the police force had arrived shortly after and took me to the hospital and my wife to the morgue. No trace of the angel was found but I know what I saw. I saw him at the funeral, at the side of my wife's grave, by the roadside watching the world and all its death. Since that night, I've retired from the force and I live alone. The stress is causing me heart problems and R keeps warning me that I could have a heart attack if I continue to live the way that I do. But I know that I don't have much time left anyway. Since the angel is back, and he keeps telling me that he's hungry. I lie awake at night, the glow of his wings illuminating my room. If there is a god, he is nothing more than the monsters that he's created. I can feel my chest getting tighter as my heart fails me. I watch as the starving angel lifts his head and watches me with hunger in its eyes.
Remember those New Year's goals that you promised yourself you would stick to? HelloFresh is here to help you eat better by delivering fresh ingredients and easy recipes right to your door, taking the hassle out of dinner time. HelloFresh makes it easy to eat well and save money. Cut back on expensive takeout and delivery and get started with HelloFresh. You'll love how fast, easy, and affordable it is to whip up a restaurant-quality meal right in your own kitchen. HelloFresh also now has 40 weekly recipes to choose from, so you can say bye-bye to your recipe rut and treat yourself and your family to exciting new flavors every week. Plus, no matter your lifestyle or meal preferences, HelloFresh has recipes sure to please everybody at your table. For me, when I'm busy getting lost in a story, I always find myself losing track of time and scrambling around dinner trying to think of something to make. With HelloFresh, it makes it easy for me to follow the recipe card and to have a delicious meal ready to eat in under 30 minutes. Recently, my favorite has been the creamy chive chicken. Say that three times fast. Also, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from. There's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands and now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. To get started, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep65 and use code MrCreep65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep65. Use code MrCreep65 for 65% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I'm a forest ranger at Yosemite National Park. Some missing hikers are never found. Written by Jordan Group. The job of Yosemite Park Ranger isn't what most people imagine. A lot of people picture us as law enforcement types, handing out tickets and enforcing park rules. When really that's the very niche aspect of it. Mostly, we're just here to assist you. Handing out maps and not speeding tickets. And giving people directions to the best of user to ideal camping locations. We remind people about safety and weather conditions from day to day. But the main thing that we do, and this is more vital than people realize, is that we're just here in case anyone gets lost or hurt. We deal with a lot of belligerent people who like to think the park is their personal playground, where they can do whatever they want. It's my job to remind them to follow the rules, to dispose of their trash properly, to pick up after their dog, and to clip its leash back on while walking the trails. Some people take this as a personal attack on their freedom. One really I'm just looking out for the safety of other visitors, like cyclists and horseback riders who share the pathways. Dogs can be unpredictable and can misbehave on trails, and we have to look out for everyone. Still, I don't often get a lot of positive feedback for enforcing the rules. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Trust me, I get it. Every once in a while, something interesting happens to break up the boredom and the monotony of the job. 
Last summer, I was walking around at night doing a patrol of the campgrounds when I saw something rustling around in the bushes. A guy came crawling out dressed in an animal costume. I asked him if he was okay and he just barked happily and then he crawled away in the opposite direction. Shortly afterwards, I saw him chasing another person who was dressed as a cat. A woman who went scampering away and hid beneath the camper van, laughing excitedly and making purring sounds, licking the dirt from her fur pants with a long tongue. She saw me watching and clawed the air in front of her face, hissing territorially. That's not how I would choose to spend my Friday nights, but I'm not the one to judge. By far the most interesting thing which has ever happened to me at Yosemite occurred last summer, and it wasn't just interesting, it was utterly terrifying. Every night when I fall asleep, I have nightmares about that day. Every time I close my eyes, I picture those dark tunnels and the rock face. It all started when somebody called in a report saying that they were out on the Cathedral Lake Trail when their brother went missing. The pair had been out hiking when they had gotten separated somehow. At first, we thought it was just a routine mishap. People go missing in the park all the time. It's no big deal in most cases, since usually the missing parties are found quickly enough. Half the time, alcohol is involved, and I have to remind people to pace themselves if they indulge while camping. But every once in a while, those missing people, they don't turn up, and we have to dispatch much larger search parties. In this case, I went out on my own at first, heading to where the man had called us from. I drove out on an ATV since it was a 16-mile round trip. When I got there, the guy looked frantic. He ran over to me and started speaking to me way too fast to understand. I told him to slow down and to just give me the facts. It's important to stay calm in these types of situations. The guy took a deep breath and let it out. And then he started talking again, a bit slower this time. We were walking on the trail. He was right beside me. Then I turned around to look at the lake and when I looked back, he was gone. Just boom, vanished. I tried to get a sense if the man had been drinking or doing any drugs. It's not that I'm trying to assume the worst in people, but we have to think of these types of things. The simplest explanation is usually the right one after all. It was much easier to imagine the two brothers taking sips from a Mickey and one of them getting separated and lost than to imagine one of them being abducted by aliens are taken in a very selective rapture. Just slow down for a second. Take some deep breaths. What's your name? Let's start with that. Greg, he said, his face turning a shade less purple as he began to inhale air with trembling breaths in and out. Well, okay, Greg. I took out my notepad, jotting this down, along with his last name, which I'll leave out for the sake of privacy. And what's your brother's name? Dave, he said, sniffling. I saw that he had been crying recently. Where was the last place that you saw your brother? 
Let's go back and retrace your steps. He started protesting, saying that that wasn't going to help, but I convinced him that we had to at least try. Greg led me back a little ways to where he had seen his brother last. I walked back here already, and I looked all around before calling you guys. I thought that maybe he went off the trail to take a leak and had tripped or hit his head. Something like that, I don't know. I was grasping at straws, but I think something. He hesitated. Something what? I probed. Do you think something took him? Like those stories that you hear about. He sounded embarrassed, but I tried to get more out of him and asked him which stories that he was talking about. You know, you hear stories about Yosemite and other national parks. I'm sure that you've heard them, even if you're not in on the conspiracy. Stories where people go missing like this and it makes no sense. Someone turns their back for a second and their son or their sister, whoever it is, is gone. Disappeared like Dave. I saw it on YouTube. Uh-huh, I replied. Not sure what corner of the internet this guy had been visiting. Well, that doesn't happen around here, I can assure you. Let's keep looking. I'm sure that'll turn up. But the longer that we looked, the less we found. It really did seem like the man's brother had just vanished. I was about to call in for more support, maybe even a canine unit. When the man had yelled from a little ways off the trail saying that he had found something. Following the sound of his voice, I eventually came to find him at the base of the mountain, face to face with the granite wall. At first, I didn't understand what he was doing there. But as I got closer, I saw there was actually a cave which was well hidden in the rock face. It blended in perfectly with the mountainside until you were almost nose to nose with a pale gray stone. Make a job, I said, patting him on the shoulder. But then I looked at our surroundings getting nervous. We were pretty far away from the path and the thick part of the forest, which was overgrown and tangled with vines and shrubbery. Do you think he would have gone into this cave on his own? Greg looked around as if checking to see if his brother had left a message for him, but there was nothing. I don't think so. It's not like him to just leave me on the trail alone either. Especially not for this long. If this was a prank or something, he would have come back by now. I can tell that something's not right. Has your brother played pranks on you like this before? I asked. And the man was in his 20s and his brother was probably of a similar age. Young men occasionally got lost or injured or trying to scare each other by pulling pranks or filming videos in the woods. It was rare, but it had happened before. Once or twice, he admitted. I didn't call you guys for a while because I thought that he was messing with me. I wouldn't put it past him, but not for this long. I was getting annoyed. Mosquitoes were biting my neck and I was sweating in the heat of the afternoon. After having marched through the foliage for hours. I imagine the guy hiding inside the cave trying to scare his younger brother. Maybe he had fallen asleep in his dark hiding place or he was just pushing it too far but either way, I was upset. If this was a prank it had wasted most of my afternoon. It probably annoyed me even more because I had my own older brother who had played tricks on me more than once in my younger days.
and this was bringing back those memories. All right, you can come out of there right now, I yelled, marching into the cave, thinking that the young man would be hiding in the small alcove. I turned a corner and saw a dark tunnel, leaping deep into the darkest recesses of the granite. This made no sense. As far as I knew, there was no tunnel in this location, especially not one of the size, but it had been well hidden, nearly invisible on the rock face. I wondered if anybody knew about it, and I wondered if it was safe. I didn't feel comfortable going any further. The dark space looked like it went on for a long, long way into the distance, and I was getting an eerie feeling standing there. It felt like I could almost hear voices whispering from all around me. The words were lost in the echoing cave, and I got a strong sensation that we weren't alone, like icy fingers walking slowly up my spine. The other man came in behind me, marveling at the cave for a second before continuing to press forward. Come on, Greg said, fortune ahead. He might be in trouble. He was anxious to keep going, not scared enough of this horrifying place with whispering voices coming from the shadows, and his apparent lack of fear made me twice as scared. I'm going back for help, I said shuffling backwards. It isn't safe. Nobody knows that we're here. My training and my instincts were overwhelming my curiosity, but Greg didn't seem to care about the dangers. The man continued going forward, disappearing into the darkness. A few seconds later he was gone and there was no indication that he had ever existed in the first place. Greg? I called out into the black abyss. There was no response. He might as well have been a ghost. An overwhelming urge to follow him rushed over me and I took a few steps forward feeling hypnotized by that black tunnel leading on and on forever. But then I shook my head, slapping my face as I tried to wake myself up from whatever trance I was in, which was overruling my common sense. I turned around and left the cave, my legs shaking and my hands unsteady as I called for assistance. After meeting the search party back of the trail, we went through the woods again to find the cave hiding within the 10,000 foot tall rock face of Cathedral Peak. But it was gone. I remembered having trouble finding it the first time and thinking that it was well hidden among the pale gray surface of the mountainside. You had to be nearly face to face with the wall to see it, since it was so invisible among the crags and boulders. I tried to tell my supervisor and the other members of the search party, but they didn't believe me. They said that there was no tunnel there. They looked for hours and they found nothing. Helicopters swept the area and more teams with more dogs, bloodhounds, and German shepherds, but nothing was turned up. There was no trace of anyone else having been out there except for me. Dumbfounded for the rest of the week and for the rest of the summer, I couldn't really focus on anything. My mind kept going back to that conversation that I had had with the man on the trail named Greg. The man who had lost his brother and then disappeared into a cave that didn't exist. 
More and more I began to wonder what would have happened if I had followed him. It took a full year for me to build up the courage to go back out to that exact spot again. It happened to be on the same date and around the same time of day. Only this time I wasn't on duty. It was my weekend off so I had plenty of time to comb the area for any clues. My backpack was full of provisions and I had enough to last for a night or two in the woods, maybe longer if need be. Somehow I just knew. I had a feeling that if I went back in that day at that time that it would be there. The cave that didn't exist. Cathedral Peak loomed above me getting larger as I made my way through the forest moving toward it. The gray clouds above were shrouding the sun in darkness while the thickening canopy blocked any remaining light from overhead. A chill ran through me, causing me to shiver involuntarily as I laid eyes on the black hole in the rock face, so plain and clear to see now. Taking a step forward, I found myself standing right in front of it, and I reached up my hands to feel the outline of the entryway, as if to confirm that it was real. It was. I took a deep breath, like a diver about to submerge, and I went inside. The air was cold and damp with a strange coppery smell. My flashlight was on my belt and I grabbed it but then decided not to turn it on. I was getting a strange feeling like I was in an unsafe place and I needed to stay silent and hidden. There was a sound coming from up ahead which I couldn't place. It was a slurping and chewing sound like someone tearing meat from bone with their teeth. As I went deeper and deeper into the tunnel, the air became colder, and so damp that I felt droplets of water running down my face and into my eyes. A trickle of light was filtering in somewhere as well, causing the cavern to faintly glow in places. The air seemed to shimmer and dance in front of my eyes as I went deeper and deeper feeling entranced as I stumbled along in the shadows. Faintly, I realized that there was something wrong with me, as if I had been drugged, but I no longer cared. In fact, I found the sensation to be quite pleasant. And then I was abruptly awoken from my daydream as I came around a corner and saw the horror unfolding within the guts of Cathedral Peak. I couldn't possibly explain what I saw down there and the shadows obscured most of it, drenching the monstrous creature in darkness. But the impression I got was of something like an octopus or a squid, crossbred with an oversized plant or a fungus, sucking and slurping, chewing and crunching something between its teeth. After a few moments of inspection, I realized that it was a person's face that was being eaten, as the details could just barely be seen in the dim light of the cave. The skin, it was being stripped from its cheeks, the eyelids being ripped off, and the lips peeled back and slurped up like noodles. The tentacles like tangled vines were everywhere, slithering and sliding across the pale gray stone all around me. At first, I thought that it was mud beneath my feet, but as I came fully to my senses, I realized that it was blood 
mingling and mixing with the dust beneath my feet, creating a dark and toxic red slurry which sucked at my boot heels. The tentacle vine things were everywhere, I realized with a numb shock. My feet were actually stepping on some of them, and I was amazed the creature hadn't noticed me yet. But it was obviously too caught up with whatever meal that it was currently ingesting. Feeling very glad that I hadn't turned on my flashlight, I began to back away very slowly, my boots crunching across to the writhing tentacles. A sick knot in my stomach was rising up and threatening to make me puke. Fear and revulsion were twisting my gut. My mind was spinning and my thoughts were racing, understanding that there was a very good chance that I would never leave this place. I tried desperately not to step on any more of these squirming, writhing tentacles which moved and twisted on the floor of the cave, soaking and basking in the blood which had been spilled everywhere, like pigs rolling happily in the mud. There was no possible way that there could be so much of it, I thought. No one person has this much blood. It was like a river. And then I saw the others. They were hanging suspended from the ceiling, from the walls, from everywhere in my vision. Amidst the purple vine tentacles, they breathed in and out, still being kept alive, but just barely. Dozens of them were strung up and down the length of the cave. Their chests were rising and falling with weak breath, but none of them opened their eyes or were speaking. It was like they all were stuck in a trance, like they were sleeping. After a few long moments of searching, I found him. Greg, the hiker from the trail who was looking for his brother. He was hanging upside down from the wall just beside me. His eyes closed. Parts of him were missing. A piece of his cheek, a part of his hand. But the wounds were slowly healing. The creature, whatever it was, kept its victims alive down there, I had realized. It was ingesting them slowly. Perhaps even using pieces of its other victims as nutrients to feed the ones who were dying of starvation. Like an otherworldly pyramid scheme built of blood and human remains. Shaking that mental image away, I grabbed a hold of Greg's shoulder, hoping to wake him up quietly. His eyes shot open a second after I had touched him, revealing only the whites, and he began to screech. And I don't mean screeching like he was screaming out of fear or pain or anything like that. This was an inhuman alarm cry, which signified to me immediately that there was no shred of humanity left in him. He was now a part of the hive mind of the creature and its tentacle army. As his head turned in a swivel, I saw smaller tentacles were wrapped around him, going into his brain and into his neck, 
invading his ears and eyes and drilled into his spinal column. I screamed involuntarily, seeing these details and I heard the creature in the tunnel as it recognized my presence. It wasn't fast, whatever it was, but it was huge. The cave shook around me, dust and pebbles falling from the stone ceiling above as I backed away from the hiker. Beneath my feet, the vines were suddenly moving quickly, sliding around so that I couldn't find at my balance. As soon as my shoes found purchase on the stone floor beneath me, I began to run. The tunnel was alive all around me now, the whipping vines twisting and bending toward me, reaching out like greedy hands trying to grab me as I raced past. Looking over my shoulder, I saw the amorphous creature's central girth was finding its way through the cave and it was moving my way a lot faster than I would have thought possible. But then again, I wouldn't have thought that any of this was possible before living it. The light of the entryway was just up ahead, and I could smell the fresh air, and I could see the sun. And then my feet suddenly slipped, as if somebody had pulled a rug out from under me, and I went crashing to the ground face first. My jaw closed hard, and I bit the end of my tongue, causing it to bleed. The taste of copper filling my mouth a second later. I tried to get to my feet. The mental image of those poor trapped people could be seen clearly in my mind's eye. In retrospect, I think the creature, whatever it was, it needed us to be unsuspecting. If we were aware of what it was doing, its hypnosis wouldn't work. Maybe it was a chemical that it released which caused people to want to explore the cave. A pheromone like insects it used to communicate. But it didn't work as well if you knew about it and if you understood its purpose. It released some more of that pheromone or whatever chemical it was using to lure people in. And I could actually feel my legs growing a bit heavier. My eyelids too. It was like I had suddenly just worked three night shifts and I really needed to sleep. But then the wave of hypnosis passed and I felt the rumbling of the ground beneath me and that broke me from my trance again, causing me to scramble to my feet from the cave floor and run. As I neared the cave entrance and sprinted towards it, leaving my backpack far behind in an effort to lighten the load. I saw the rocks were actually closing in, tightening the gap. The entryway was shrinking somehow. It was the vines, I realized. They were what was camouflaging the entrance, their color changing to match the pale gray stone. I picked up the pace the twisting forms beneath me making it even more difficult. I didn't dare risk a glance over my shoulder, feeling the rumbling of the floor and knowing that 
The bulk of the creature was just behind me closing in. With the gap of the exit narrowing even further, shrinking to the size of a dartboard, I dove headfirst into it, imagining my face slamming into a sheer rock wall as it suddenly turned to stone right in front of me, sealing me in this dark labyrinth of suffering forever with the rest of these tortured souls. My eyes were squinted tightly shut as I felt the vines pulling and tearing at me as I went through the gap. For an instant, they squeezed in around my midsection, threatening to stop me like Winnie the Pooh after an unfortunate attempt at pilfering honey. When I popped out of the hole and it sealed up behind me in an instant, I heard a loud crash as the creature flew headlong into its own obstruction. The trap that it had created for me to keep me there had hindered its escape, preventing it from chasing after me. I could hear it thrashing and clawing at the vines, desperate for more flesh to sustain itself. Whatever it was, it was growing too large even for its own control. Left alone to feed in the heart of the mountain, it would eventually destroy itself. It would consume its own flesh to sate its monstrous hunger, like a snake eating its own tail. I had a very strong suspicion that it was true. With that very specific idea in mind, I wandered back to my car. It was easier now without the backpack and all the gear but the walk back to the cave would be harder. There would be lots to carry next time. After a trip to the hardware store, I went back out to the trail. It was nighttime now and the place was abandoned. I had borrowed one of the Ranger ATVs and took my supplies out to the spot where the cave had been. After bringing a few buckets of water from the lake, I began my work. Since I had marked the cave, it was pretty easy to find it again and to begin laying down the fast drying cement. As park rangers, our job is usually to stop people from vandalizing mountains in this way, but I got the feeling that Mother Nature would forgive me for this one. It was my job to protect this place and the people who visited. And nothing could protect people from this thing. It was best to seal it away forever and let it slowly consume itself. Without a fresh supply of hikers, it would eventually run out of calories. It would eventually expire. It was only a matter of time. The vine tentacles squirmed beneath the layer of cement, groggily reaching out for me, trying to pull me in. I grabbed the trowel and slapped on another thick coating and watched as it rapidly began to dry. And the tentacles began to smooth out and settle down again, falling back asleep. The inhuman shriek could be heard from inside again, much louder this time as if all of the hikers who the creature had abducted 
had all woken up at the same instant and for just a second realized their predicament. Sorry, Greg, I muttered to myself, alone in the dark forest. I told you not to go in there. I got stuck in traffic in the middle of a blizzard. I will never forget what I saw. Written by Chab1337 A loud honk sounded as the car in front of me came to a sudden stop. Something had dashed across the road. Something large. I slammed my foot down on the brakes and prayed the icy road wouldn't allow yet another fender bender. It was hard to make out any shapes through the thick veil of the blizzard's harrowing symphony, but I could tell that whatever had crossed the highway had done so with speed and precision. Maybe a moose, I had thought to myself, paying no further mind to the matter. I reclined into my seat and turned up the volume on the radio. Frank Sinatra's, I've got you under my skin, filled the cozy insides of my SUV, and I felt my heart rate suddenly stabilize. It had been several hours since I had left my hometown, and now I was surrounded by an endless expanse of white as far as the eye could see. There should have been a forest on either side of the highway, but with these severely worsening weather conditions, it was impossible to make out anything further than six feet away. As I tapped my fingers on the steering wheel in perfect synchronization with the song, I grew more and more impatient. We had stood still for at least five minutes by now. Surely there couldn't be this much traffic all the way out here. The song was nearly over and we still hadn't moved. Behind me, I could hear a chorus of aggressive honking. There were at least six cars behind me as far as I could tell, probably six in front as well. Their headlights were the only indicator of their existence, as the snow had turned everything else invisible. And then a grisly thought spread like wildfire throughout the crevices of my mind. Had there been an accident? I sat up in my seat and made an attempt to somehow peek above the top of the car ahead of me. It was futile. What is going on? I murmured under my breath as a loud sigh escaped my body. The howling winds outside violently slammed into the exterior of the car, killing any notions that I may have had about stepping out and investigating. For now, it was best that I just waited it out. It would surely pass in a minute or so. I picked up my phone and started messing around with a few apps. I do not condone texting and driving, but considering that we hadn't been moving for a while, I would wager a short social media session couldn't hurt anyone. And besides, it didn't look like I was going anywhere anytime soon either. I even glanced over to the half-empty bottle of Jack Daniels that laid unassuming on the floorboard of the seat beside me, but I decided against it for now. Prior to this traffic jam, I had been visiting my extended family for the holidays back in my hometown. Due to reasons that we don't need to delve into, I was forced to leave earlier than I had initially expected.
Which was fine by me as I couldn't stand another second of chatty family drama and that awful holiday cheer. Forgive me if I'm sparse with the details, but for privacy's sake, I won't disclose the name of the town that I departed from, nor where I am currently headed. All you need to know is that the road that I was traveling on was located pretty far up in the northwestern region of the United States. It was absolutely freezing. Some time passed and the vehicles on the road hadn't moved an inch. It was as though they were rooted to the icy foundations below. Dauntingly, I observed as the car in front of me was in the process of getting devoured by the rapidly growing snowfall. Its tires were nearly completely engulfed, and I figured that it wouldn't be long until getting home in time to watch today's football game would be the least of my concerns. And then, growing in the distance, were sirens. I looked up from my phone and directed my gaze toward the side view mirror, and I saw a faint blinking blue light penetrate through the thicket of snow. The ambulance zoomed past me at breakneck speeds, and shortly after, a police car had followed. This only reaffirmed my belief that something terribly wrong had occurred. I scrolled through my phone and continued as usual, though my digital endeavors would prove to be quite fruitless. The longer that I used my phone, the worse the connection seemed to get. TikTok and YouTube videos began buffering, and other apps that required internet connectivity wouldn't even load. I'm by no means a physicist, a tech guru, meteorologist, or whatever the appropriate title for this would be, but I surmised that the ongoing raging storm could be linked to the shortcomings of my phone signal. Incidentally, I was also in the middle of nowhere, 40 minutes away from the nearest settlement and 3 hours away from the closest city. The remoteness of my location would surely also have an impact on my... A light tapping on my window caught me off guard and I jolted in my seat. A oh, crap, I thought, as the sight of a bulky police officer greeted me on the other side of the glass. By the looks of it, he had been out in the storm for way too long. His cheeks were glowing pink, and he had snowflakes stuck in his burly mustache. I quickly stole my phone in my pocket and rolled down the window, preparing to explain why I was on my phone in traffic. But the officer didn't care about any of that. Good evening, sir. The officer started. There's been an accident further up on the road. Right now we're trying to... Could you turn that down? He gestured towards the radio. Oh, sorry officer, of course, I replied. Dialing the scroll wheel of my volume button all the way down. As I was saying, we're trying to evacuate this um whole area. Once I've gotten to the final car at the end behind you there, and I've gotten him to start backing up, I want you to follow him immediately. You want me to drive in reverse? I questioned. A quizzical grimace stretched across my face. Now the road's too narrow right now. I don't see any other option, unless you want to try turning around and risk ending up in one of these ditches here, the officer said with a slight smirk. But before I had the chance to say anything else, a thundering bang sounded a couple of yards in front of us. 
The winds carried the sound with ear-splitting accuracy. The officer reacted immediately, hovering his hand above the pistol in his holster. He took a few steps back and tried signaling in on his shoulder-mounted radio. Another bang echoed through the harsh wind, followed by another, and then another. The sounds were unmistakable. They were gunshots. He drew his pistol and rushed towards the source of the sounds. I watched as he slowly faded from view. A void of white had swallowed him whole. I stared in shock for a couple of minutes, expecting the officer to return any moment. But he never came. A small mass of snow had started accumulating inside my car, so I quickly rolled up my window. I could hear another set of muffled gunshots joining the already dominant ones. It sounded like they were completely emptying their magazines into whoever or whatever. And then in perfect unity, the sound stopped. The silence weighed heavy as I sat in anticipation. My mind was flustered with thoughts and ideas, but the prevalent feeling that occupied my body was a creeping sensation of dread. Just what the heck was going on? I anxiously tapped my fingers on the steering wheel. In a moment of weakness, I once again looked over to the liquor bottle from the floor. I hadn't gone this long without a drink in years. I mean, one sip wouldn't hurt, right? Just to calm my nerves. If I was discreet enough... The officers would have no way of knowing. Just as I leaned over to the passenger side to pick the bottle up, my vehicle violently trembled. Something powerful had slammed into my car. I cursed loudly and rose back up, abandoning the bottle. I frantically searched around, looking for any signs of the perpetrator. I scanned my rear view, the side window and even the passenger side window. Nothing but a flurry of white snow. And then I noticed something in the blizzard in front of me. A black silhouette grew larger and larger and soon I could make out what it was. A man, wait no, two men. And they were running. Running towards my car. But these guys weren't police officers nor any of the paramedics that had arrived earlier. They must have been the denizens of the cars up front. And then two more people appeared behind them, either giving chase to or following the two men in front. As they inched closer, I could properly see the expressions carved into their faces. They were terrified. They looked as though they had seen a ghost. The first two men ran past my car. They didn't even look at me. And shortly after, the two people behind them had followed, a woman and a boy. They hurried across the ice at great speeds while at the same time exercising caution so as to not slip and fall. Before I had the chance to react, they were gone, having once again been consumed by the endless white void. This was definitely cause for concern. Who in their right mind would abandon the comforts of their vehicles all the way out here in this weather? The driver in front of me cautiously opened one of the doors of the car. A middle-aged white man with a beer gut stepped out into the cold. He slung his puffer jacket around his shoulders and stared off into the distance ahead. I watched him curiously, wondering if he too would start running, and then wondering whether I should join him if he indeed decided to. 
Right now, it seemed illogical, but then again, these guys clearly knew something that I didn't. Maybe there was a gas leak up ahead. Maybe some radioactive material had been improperly disposed of. My mind raced, looking for any logical explanations for my current predicament, but I found none. The man took a few steps forward, intently inspecting the blizzard ahead. It seemed as though something had caught his attention. He took another few steps forward, positioning himself in front of his car, partially obscuring my view of him, his left side still visible. But there was something else. In the deep recesses of the snowstorm, something was moving. I strained my eyes, leaning forward in my seat and staring through my snow-covered windshield. Approaching from the left side of the road onto the oncoming lane, a large silhouette bobbed up and down as it slowly advanced toward the man. Though it was far away, it looked to be near twice his height, but he hadn't noticed it. The man was far too busy examining whatever had caught his attention directly in front of him. An overwhelming sense of dread had filled my veins. The way the silhouette moved, I couldn't quite explain why, but it felt predatory. Like a lion stalking its prey through the thick underbrush of the African savanna, right before springing into action and securing itself a fresh meal. Was it a moose? It didn't look to be. I mean, the proportions were way off, and it almost looked to be bipedal. But I couldn't think of any other large animals out here that the silhouette could have belonged to. I doubted that this area had ever seen any polar bears, and even so, they possibly couldn't reach this size. I mean, could they? It was like my primal instinct screamed at me to do something. I felt my fight or flight start to kick in, but I managed to keep it under wraps. I was safe inside of my warm SUV. But the man, however, I had to warn him somehow. If I honked my horn, whatever was stalking him might have leaped into action right away. It was way too risky. Before I could think of anything, the man screamed in terror. Muffled through my car's thick exterior, his cries echoed. I focused ahead of me, trying to get a glimpse of what had riled him up so badly. He turned around in, in an attempt to flee. He had almost made it back to the driver's side door of his car when... He had planted his face into the cold, hard ground. He must have slept. The predatory silhouette to his left was nowhere to be seen now. For a brief moment, I locked eyes with the man. A familiar look of excruciating fear contoured across his face. He dug his long and unkempt nails into the snow, slowly crawling forward. And then he screamed yet again but this time not out of fear but in pain. Violently he was dragged back. I watched in horror as the man tried to fight it, clutching the pottery snow as if it would have actually provided a stable grip. He was dragged in front of his car and out of my view. Just before he had rounded the left side of the corner, I could see his blood-covered hands desperately cling to the tire, and then he was pulled away. I was in complete disbelief. It was like a scene from a horror movie, except this was real. It was actually happening. The man's wailing abruptly ceased, and besides the harsh winds of the blizzard, no sound was made. 
I pulled out my phone and tried my best to shake the trembling in my hands as I dialed 911. As I waited for a response, I made sure all the doors were locked while I glued my eyes to the spot where I last seen the man. A pair of long indentations scarred the snow where he had lay, and a crimson handprint stained the black rubber of the front tire. Come on, come on, pick up already. I harshly muttered it to my phone. But I never made it past the dialing tone. Was it because I had no service? I've heard that many emergency lines still operate in spite of a poor phone signal. But right now, I was inclined to believe the contrary. I eventually gave up and put my phone down. I shrunk down into my seat, making myself as small as I could. I couldn't possibly tell you how long I sat there waiting like that. The concept of time felt irrelevant at that moment. In my reclined position, I still retained a decent line of sight to the outside world. There were no signs of movement, just an empty white canvas. I could hear no discernible sounds either. I watched in what felt like slow motion as each individually unique flake of snow had landed, and then proceeded to melt onto the glass. The windshield wipers fought the blizzard vigorously, brushing aside everything the malevolent storm had to offer. And then suddenly, with a squelched thud, something heavy crashed down on the window and the wipers were now smearing a viscous red liquid back and forth across the windshield. A nearly indescribable sense of paralyzing horror drilled into my very soul as I realized what I was looking at. I immediately recognized the sorrowed eyes and contorted expression of pain that draped across the poor man's face. Glistening red blood had completely dyed his hair, and the man's skin was full of lacerations and tears. But the true horror of this scene lay not with the frightful sight that greeted me no more than twelve inches away, separated only by a cracked glass screen. Now, the true horror presented itself as I finally mustered up the courage to ponder the question that I'm not even sure I wanted the answer to. Where was the rest of him? Upon the revelation that I was gazing at a freshly decapitated human head, I was compelled to scream uncontrollably at the top of my lungs, and so I did. I couldn't help it. I felt nausea and on the verge of vomiting. It took all my strength to gather any fragment of composure that had not yet left my body, and I quickly sat up on my seat, frantically scanning my surroundings. Still, I saw nothing except a heavy downpour of snow. I tried to calm down as I knew that panicking would only worsen whatever situation was at hand. I steadied my breathing and sat still, slowly counting down from ten. However, the grotesque sight that greeted me whenever I looked through the windshield didn't exactly help. So I closed my eyes and continued counting, focusing on controlling my breathing. Inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale. But even as I closed my eyes, I still saw his face. The gruesome image had burned itself deep into my mind, and I felt anxious at the thought that I may never sleep peacefully again. In my distracted haze, I failed to notice that something foreign had filled the air. Something ominous. It was a deep sound, barely audible. A stark contrast to the roaring winds outside.
It was the kind of sound you feel rather than hear, if that makes any sense. It was deep and bellowing, and I swear that I could feel my chest faintly vibrate. Like when you're at a concert or a nightclub with a really loud bass. Carefully, I rolled down my window a quarter of the way in order to better hear the curious noise. It was much clearer now, and the best way to describe it would be to call it a sort of low-pitched rumble. Its tone fluctuated ever so slightly, as if a synchronization was short, rapid breaths. It would be a rather powerful display of vocal cords if the sound was an organic origin. I tried my best to pinpoint the direction from which the sound had emanated, but I found the task to be near impossible. It may have been the wind distorting and dislocating the sound, but it sounded like it had originated from every direction. I didn't know what to do. Obviously, I didn't want to exit the car and make a run for it like the previous motorists before me, but I felt that staying inside the car would only render me a sitting duck. I had no weapons to protect myself either, not even a pocket knife in the glove compartment. The only thing that I had was an old Zippo lighter which I doubted would do any real damage in a fight. The deep rumbling subsided and was instead replaced by a hooting sound, reminiscent of that of an owl, only much deeper. Like if someone blew air into a hollow tree trunk. But the sound was not easy to pinpoint, and I could discern that it was coming from behind the car in front of me, where I had last seen the man before his untimely demise. I fixed my gaze toward the source of the sound expecting to see its owner peeking around the edges of the vehicle at any moment, when I suddenly heard another, identical set of deep hooting coming from my left side. I wondered how the animal or creature or whatever it was that made those sounds had somehow managed to sneak past my line of sight and position itself to my left without me noticing. But my wondering was cut short when the original set of hoots in front once again started bellowing through the winter air, as if in response to the other ones. And to my utter dismay, I slowly began to realize that whatever was making those sounds, whatever had killed that man was not alone out here. And that's when I first saw it. As if on cue, I noticed the dominant silhouette standing in at the middle of the road, contrasting itself against the rushing snowfall. Slowly emerging from the harrowing blizzard just a few yards away from the car ahead, the creature revealed itself. It was unlike anything that I had ever seen before, an abominable middle finger to all of God's creations upon this earth. Its skull resembled that of a crocodile resting over ten feet above the ground. It also had a large crest fixated right over its eyes, reminiscent of the horns of a bull. Its razor-sharp teeth were stained red and blood dripped down from its maw onto the snow-covered asphalt. The entire creature was covered in dense white fur like that of a polar bear. No wonder I hadn't spotted it until now. It was perfectly camouflaged among the powdery white snow. The rest of the body was hard to make out due to the storm, but I could tell that it was huge and easily towering over the vehicle that it slowly approached. It moved closer, trotting towards me in a jagged fashion. Red still dripped from its malformed mouth. It almost looked to be smiling. Almost. I looked around the cabin of the car once more desperately scouring for anything that I could use to defend myself. Except for the bottle of liquor that I had lain about, I was at a loss. 
At least I could ease the pain of being torn limb from limb by having a little alcohol in my system. I thought to myself. Seeing the creature uncomfortably close now, I made an attempt to just drive away. It was true what the officer had said previously about the road being extremely narrow, but in the face of certain death, I figured it was worth a shot. Though as I was boxed in by both a car in front and one in my rear, I would have to succeed at the difficult maneuver in order to make an escape. A maneuver I wasn't too sure I could make in these perilous conditions, but I had to try. I applied my foot down onto the gas pedal, and the tires spun around in the snow, slinging bits of debris everywhere. Still stationary, I pressed down even harder, hoping to God that I would break free from my frozen constraints. In my panic, I gazed ahead and locked eyes with the creature. I could feel its wicked stare burrow deep into my soul. The wheels kept spinning, but I wasn't making any progress. I had waited too long. It was what I had feared earlier. I was trapped and there was nowhere to go. An ear-splitting hoot sounded just a few yards away and I saw the creature had stopped in its tracks. It raised its head and let out another hoot. What do you want? I stopped, punching the steering wheel in frustration. The wretched thing cocked its head and it let out another vocalization. It was as if it wanted to grab my attention or to distract me. Before I knew it, I felt a searing pain aching throughout my body and my world was turned upside down as a powerful force had slammed into the left side of the car, sending it flying. The SUV toppled over, accompanied by the sounds of crushing metal. Thankfully, I was wearing my seatbelt or else I would have probably broken my neck while tumbling around inside the car like dirty laundry in a washing machine. The car eventually came to a stop. I found myself suspended upside down in the driver's seat. The vehicle had rolled down into the nearby ditch on the side of the road. Below me on the inside of the car's roof were fragments of shattered glass and heaps of snow. I hadn't quite processed what had happened so I sat there for a moment, taking it all in. Suddenly, everything felt so calm and quiet. I questioned if I had even survived the ordeal. A warm liquid flowed down my chin into my mouth and then down the rest of my face. The stinging copper taste made me snap out of my trance and I began to assess the situation. Outside, I heard heavy thuds rapidly approaching the vehicle. Each mighty stomp struck down into the snow with rhythm, and I could imagine the creature's mouth practically foaming at the prospect of a fresh new meal. The footsteps came to a sudden halt right outside of the driver's side window, and I turned my head to get a better look. A set of two large and powerful hind legs stood mere inches from my face. They were covered in what looked to be reptilian-like scales, lined with dense white fur, and the creature had three long talons that protruded from each foot. The deafening scraping of metal filled the air as I imagined the creature began clawing away at the undercarriage of the SUV. From the fast-paced shifting of the monster's feet, I began to understand the sheer ferocity with which it attacked. It was going ballistic, straightening the exterior at an incredibly fast rate. A combination of hoots and growls escaped its bloodthirsty jaws as it chipped away at the metal. It wouldn't be long until it was through. 
Another pair of heavy footsteps stopped just a short distance away on the opposite side of the car, right outside of the passenger side window. Like its predecessor, it too began clawing and kicking at the body of the car. The two creatures were relentless. I had never seen anything like it. Not even wild hyenas were this ravenous. I braced for impact as I unbuckled my seatbelt, positioning myself in such a manner so that I wouldn't break my neck upon impact. I hit the ground hard and was greeted by the sensation of cold snow and broken glass. The car rocked back and forth as the creatures violently attacked. It was obvious that I couldn't stay in here for long, but escaping the crushed remains of my vehicle and running out on foot didn't seem favorable either. I felt a deep desperation begin to set in as I realized that I would most likely not live to see another day. This was it. And just as all hope had faded in, I began to accept my fate. My arm brushed up against a cold and oblong object. I shifted my body around to see what it was, and a light bulb had ignited inside my head as I gazed upon the still intact bottle of liquor that laid on the floor. My hands trembled as I reached deep into my pocket and I extracted my old Zippo lighter. However, I examined the Jack Daniels and gauged that the contents inside would not be enough for the powerful reaction that I was hoping for. So I opened the glove compartment and I began searching. Ah, there it is. I cheered as my fingers grazed upon the bottle of scented hand sanitizer, an old relic from the pandemic. It was nearly full as well. I opened the two bottles and began pouring the disinfectant alcohol down into the half-empty liquor bottle. The sanitizer mixed in with the strong bourbon and it would surely be enough for an improvised Molotov cocktail. I ripped up a piece of cloth from my shirt and stuffed it down the bottleneck. With the Molotov in hand, I crawled toward the cracked windshield. I spun around and pressed my feet against the shattered glass frame. In an adrenaline-infused state, I pressed my legs down and applied pressure to the windshield. I strained my body and pushed my legs harder than I had ever done before in my life, wishing that I had spent more time at the gym prior to this. Due to its severely damaged condition, it didn't take long before the windshield came off, and the harsh winds of the outside world filled the cabin of the upside-down car. Above me, the creatures growled and bellowed, ripping and tearing away at the framework. I could see narrow slivers of light begin to penetrate the underside of the car, meaning that they were nearly through. I crawled through the new opening and out into the unforgiving blizzard. I feared that as soon as I stepped outside, one of the creatures would promptly place my head in its jaws and I'd be done for. But that never came. It seemed that they were too preoccupied with getting through the hard exterior of the SUV and they had failed to notice that I had made my crafty escape. I kept crawling along the snow, praying to God that the beasts wouldn't turn their hideous heads and discover the easy meal slithering away right beside it. I didn't dare look back either. I couldn't bring myself to face the abominable animals. Once I had achieved a satisfactory distance away from the car, I finally turned around and rose to my feet. I ignited my lighter and set the Molotov cocktails ablaze. Don't try this at home, by the way. With all my remaining strength, I hurled the flaming bottle at the heap of scrap metal that used to be my car 
and I watched in glory as the fire began to rise. I even think that I hit one of the creatures as I heard a dazzled yelp cry out. The flames weren't nearly big enough to cause a massive explosion or anything, but it was just enough to distract the creatures so that I was able to make a run for it. I ran back out onto the road and continued past all the vacant cars that stood further up. The ice was painted red and a couple of human bodies, or at least what remained of them, were strung about the various abandoned vehicles. Eventually, I came upon the ambulance in the police car that had arrived about an hour prior. There were no signs of the officer who would talk to me, but deep down I knew what kind of fate had befallen him. In the distance, I heard ominous rumbling sounds coming from one of the creatures, followed by agitating hooting. And they finally noticed that I was gone, and in that case, I didn't have a lot of time. I got inside the ambulance and planted myself down on the driver's seat. A frozen and severed human hand was attached to the wheel. I gagged as I ripped it off and tossed it out the open window. The creature's shrill cries echoed through the snowstorm, and it sounded like they were coming closer. Desperately, I turned the ambulance's ignition and to my delight it started up without a hitch. I kicked my foot down on the gas pedal and floored it out of there. Luckily for me, ambulances in this part of the U.S. come well-equipped to handle hazardous terrain and snow-covered roads. As I drove, I intently watched the rearview mirror hoping that I would get a last glimpse of one of the monsters, but the only things I saw were whirling snowflakes, dancing effortlessly along the icy winds that carried them. About 30 minutes of driving later, I arrived at a small town. The blizzard had begun to let up and the sun was starting to set on the horizon. I parked outside the first roadside hotel that I found and must have looked like a zombie as I frantically begged the receptionist to alert the authorities. She looked extremely nervous but did as I told her. After a while of talking, the kind receptionist informed me that the police would stop by first thing in the morning. Apparently, the nearest station was an hour's drive away and the raging storm had caused major problems across infrastructure over all the state. Seeing as how nobody was in immediate danger, they would wait until the roads were cleared and they could travel safe again. I wasn't happy with this response, but I was too tired to really care. I checked into one of the hotel rooms and began typing all of this out on my phone. There are still so many questions left unanswered, but I imagine tomorrow will bring more news about the situation. I just hope that the other motorists along that highway made it out okay, but I have my doubts about it. The blizzard is now subsided and outside my second story window, I'm treated to a view of the clear night sky and the endless expanse of the tundra. I'll admit this landscape is beautiful, though it is a shame that I will now forever associate the tranquility of snowfall with the abhorrent horrors of events prior. However, that is not all. Since it was getting hot in my room, I decided to crack my window slightly ajar. For the past hour, I've been listening to the breeze floating across the frozen countryside. There are no sounds of wild animals out here. Oddly enough, but there is something else. Occasionally in the distance, the silence is broken by the ever so familiar and foreboding sound of a faint hoot crying out into the night.
Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.